Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 97. There's always going to be people out there doubting that what you're doing. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating cost. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. On today's show, we have Connor Loudcant of Loudcant Farms and Serrated Shade. He's going to discuss his beef cattle operation, including custom grazing on private and public lands, his journey here, and how he's getting started in doing this. In addition to that, he and his brother also have serrated shade. So for the overgrazing section, we're going to take a deeper dive into serrated shade. So you know all about that. It's a really good episode, and I think you'll enjoy it. But first, 10 seconds about my farm. Two really quick things. First, I believe you probably noticed we're at episode 97 on the podcast. We are getting so close to 100. I'm really excited for that milestone. On the farm, the fescue grass or fescue growing in my yard is about high enough to be grazed. I grazed it last I would say September or October. Um, and yes, I live far enough out in the country. I graze my yard. And I am so glad I don't have a HOA to talk to. Because I'm sure they wouldn't be a fan. Enough about that. Let's talk to Connor. Connor, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Cal. I know we had some technical difficulties. Last week, but I'm excited to be back. I'm a long-time listener, so should be have a good conversation today. Wonderful. And Connor, I do appreciate you coming back. For our listeners out there, I lost power in the evening, no bad weather, for about three hours. Um, and when I go to report the power issue, it said three houses didn't have power. So I was one of the lucky ones. <laughs> Connor, to get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? 
Yeah. So I'm a uh, 25 year old farmer based in Southwest Wisconsin in, in Sauk County. So lower left corner. Yeah. Lower left corner. And so my journey started, I guess my grazing really started in 2020. So in 2020, I was graduating college up at UW River Falls. And at that point, I got to go home early because of COVID. So I had already secured a lease on my grandfather's farm and in college, I'd been doing the math, running numbers, trying to figure out what kind of operation I really wanted to pursue. And my neighbor had been rotationally grazing, I would say for about five or six years at that point. So I had seen what he was doing. He was grazing his cows in December. We'd been feeding ours hay in August. So I figured he was doing something right. So that was a, a big push in that direction. So I decided to go ahead and sign up for Equip through NRCS and USDA. And we converted about, I think it was about 300, 350 acres of corn, soybean and hay ground that first year into rotational grazing. And then since then, I now graze about 600 acres of private ground and 300 acres of public ground in Wisconsin. Oh, yes. Very good. Now, Connor, did you always know you wanted to come home and graze cattle? Not, not always, no. Originally, I was on the uh, veterinarian tracks. My dad's a veterinarian, and I, I, I thought I was going to want to do that. But in my, in my last year of school, I, was, I, was ha I had enough of school, and once COVID hit and we got to go home, I was like, yeah, I, I'm not going back to school. And my fiance is actually in vet school right now, so seeing what she's going through, I'm awfully glad I decided not to do that. Okay, I've got a very important question. Did you go ahead and get your degree before you left? I did. I did get the degree. Yeah. The last okay. three months of school were kind of a joke because it was all online and the professors were like, yeah, it's an early oh, summer yes. basically. But no, I, I did get, I did finish and get the degree. So, well, I'm going to tell everyone how smart I am. So I go to OSU, Oklahoma State University, and I'm working on my animal science degree. And also in addition to going to school, I was married, had a couple of kids. And I was working on the OSU dairy as well. So I go in, I guess the summer of 94, and I tell my advisor, I said, I got to get out of here. I've had enough. I got to get out. And so he started, and I was working for the university, so I could only take six hours. I said, I'll quit my job out there. I want to finish with college. I got to go get a job where I can have some decent hours. I came home and dairied, so I don't know what I was thinking. Anyway, I um, talked to my advisor, and he says, okay. So he built me a schedule. He says, we can get you graduated with this, but you're going to have to take a correspondence course. And for all the people who don't know what a correspondence course is, that's where they send you the books and you mail in assignments. Precursor to online. It's just not as quick. So I had to take this correspondence course. And now that I think about it, maybe I shouldn't say this out loud. OSU may want their degree back. So I get to... <laughs> December, I finished that semester, and I can't graduate without this correspondence course. So I said, okay, I'll get it done. I come home. I start dairying. I don't get the degree done, I, or degree. I don't get the correspondence course done. I don't even remember. It was like some introduction to psychology or some, mm -hmm. something that had no interest to me. So I didn't do it. And... If luck wasn't on my side, I would have finished there one or three credits short of a degree. 
But in the summer, in June or July, I guess July, towards the end of the, the summer semester, my advisor called me and he says, I don't know, but they approved you to graduate without that course. Really? Like, oh, great. And um, of course, going forward, it was so important to have that degree in place to do some of the things I've done. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, you're pretty lucky you got there. off with that. Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. I hope they don't hear it now and say, uh, we made a mistake. <laughs> Need to revoke that now. Yeah. So going through the school, think about vet school, and then you, you started doing the numbers on grazing. Mm -hmm. And you were able to secure your grandparents' uh, farm to lease. Were they open to the idea? Um, I would say, so when we started the uh, the initial process of me trying to lease it, I was still maybe planning on going the traditional route. So my grandpa had been set stocking, making all his own feed. And I oh, ran yeah. numbers like like that for a while, trying to figure out how to make it work. But, I mean, machinery costs these days are, are through the roof. And oh, yeah. I mean, we were having to feed basically through the summer because the pastures weren't growing anything. So I knew something, something had to change. So by the end of the lease agreement, I had told them, you know, this is what I want to do. And, you know, old farmers, they have their doubts. So they, right. they definitely doubted it and thought it wouldn't work, but it, it's, it's worked out really well, really well. Yeah. So you were able to get a equip loan to get started. Mm -hmm. What do you use that money for? Yep. So in order to like apply for an equip grant or loan, whatever it is, the, uh, they, they need to identify a problem on your operation. So in my case, it was the set stocking. There was no grass growing. So that, and I mean, that was causing more water and soil runoff because there wasn't any oh, yeah. infiltration happening. So that was a problem they identified. So that's how I was able to to apply for it. I mean, it, it was easy enough. I contacted my local NRCS office and they set me up with a grazing plan and all the other stuff. And then the way the program works, I had to front the cost of the fence, the water line and the seed. So Equip is basically a reimbursement program. So oh, okay. once you install all that and they come out and verify it, then they can go ahead and pay you. And then another big push to do this, to switch to rotational grazing is Part of the equip, they uh, it's called this prescribed grazing payment. So they'll pay you X number of dollars per acre for three years. When I started, to rotationally manage manage it. Now, if you get a new equip, at least in Wisconsin, it varies from state to state. Oh, they'll yeah. give you that a grazing payment for five years now. So it's interesting to see that the po program is evolving as well as all the other practices are. Now, when you were considering it and running numbers and deciding this is what you wanted to do, did you were you aware that they were going to pay you some money for three years? Did that figure into your amount? That that did, did you, figure into oh yeah yeah that did figure into my initial initial I would say cash flow projections. Oh yeah, but yeah, I you know now this will be my first year running without that payment, and I would certainly you know wish I was still getting it, but. It right. really helps a young farmer get off, get the, or get the place going because I mean, costs just come up out of nowhere and you you need to pay for stuff. So it's nice to have that little extra payment. Oh yeah. And depending on, on what class of animal you go with, uh, that payoff may be further out than you want it to be. Mm -hmm. So yeah, exactly. that, that, 
that could be a real beneficial tool for you. Mm-hmm. And around me, I, I don't know what it's like down by you, but crop ground rent down or down here is starting to get a little outrageous. I mean, it's it's doable, but that grazing payment really kind of helps subtract maybe some of that crop rent. So, oh yeah. And when we talk about that, are you surrounded by cropland? Pretty much. Or is it a yeah. mix? Yeah. I mean, I would say in Sauk County here, we got a big rotational grazing movement. So every year the NRCS is putting four or 500 acres of new pasture into production. So it's definitely changing the landscape, but there's still corn and soybeans everywhere you look. So, oh yeah. Jared on, on last week was talking about how much cropland he has. And I mentioned it last week on the podcast. We don't Mm -hmm. have cropland near me. I mean. 30, 40 minutes east, there's a little bit of cropland, not a great lot. You go mm-hmm. west a couple hours, you can get some cropland, but we're really just pasture here. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Which which makes my lease payments, I am 100% sure, a lot cheaper than yours. I would suspect so. <laughs> Basically around here, you got to pay to play if you want to get all the ground. It's That's just right, what it yeah. is. I mean, you can occasionally find... The landowner that likes what you're doing, you know, the conservation side and enjoys looking at cattle and the nice new fence you put up. But in most cases, it comes down to the money. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It it always speaks the loudest. Oh, yeah, for sure. Now, when you got the you got the equip loan, were you on your business plan as you thought about it? Were you doing stalkers? Were you doing cow calf? What was your yep. initial enterprise? Yeah, so, yeah, I can I can go over all our different enterprises. So when I started out there in 2020, uh, so we were able to get the seating in that very first year of 2020 and then the fence went in 2021. But I spent all spring putting up some not great temporary fence so I could at least graze all our property. So at that time, we had about, ooh, maybe about 100 cow-calf pairs. And then my very first year, I started off with some custom grazing right away too. And I took in probably, I would have maybe like 150 or 160 replacement heifers for a guy. So that's what I did my first year. And then the second year, I uh, brought that guy's heifers back as pairs. And then at that point, we still had 100 cows. And that's when I started my first year of heifer heifer breeding was in 2021. And then nowadays... I'm raising about 250 head of replacement heifers for this coming year. We'll be raising about 40 cow-calf pairs. I rent bulls. Um, what else do I got? I, I do have a few stockers, stocker steers. It's mostly from our own cow herd. We're just retaining those to oh, yeah. capture some value of them being on grass. And then I do still custom graze. So we're looking at probably about 200 or so custom grazing cattle coming in this summer too. And I do have serrated shade, which is my affordable livestock shade company. And I know we'll be talking about that later here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that first season when you reseeded that ground, do you have to wait a certain amount of time before you can graze it? Obviously, you've got to do some for management purposes. But did Equip require anything on your part? Um, As far as the first year goes, I know, I mean... To help the grass establish, you definitely want to graze it differently than if it was right. a standing perennial pasture. I don't think, I mean, they're out there helping you, you know, make decisions on what you want to do, but I'd, I wouldn't say there's a 
requirement how you're supposed oh, yeah. to graze it. I think I'm trying to think back. It's a few years ago now. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the first year we had our existing pasture there. So we grazed that kind of heavy again, but then we lightly grazed all the, uh, oh, yeah. the, the new seeding because we didn't want to hurt it back too much. But I think for equip for the prescribed grazing, I think they require you, you to move your livestock every three days. And in my case, we're moving them every, every day anyway. So uh, that wasn't oh, yeah. an issue at all. I mean, three days is, is very doable too for someone that might have a full-time off-farm job. And once a day, honestly, is pretty easy too because it only takes, you know, 15 minutes or something. So. Oh, yes. Yeah. With your, your cow-calf getting started, did you buy those all new or were they what your grandpa had ran and you had a deal in place there? Yeah. So in the early 2000s, my grandpa had sold his dairy cows and got into the beef herd. And basically it. Renting from family, I could say, would be complicated. So we negotiated that. I mean, half of that cow herd was ours already. But and then that second half, we worked out a deal that when those, those, when those last 30 or whatever cows, which we called his, when those phased out and became cull cows, we would sell them. That cull cow money would go to him. And then all those oh, few yeah. calves for the few years, those would be ours. And I mean, we need, looking back at, wasn't the best deal, but it's what we did. So, well, anytime you're you're working with family, that adds a layer of complication to it. I could and say it, just... it adds ten layers of complication. <laughs> yeah, I, but... I think you could agree. Yeah, um, kind of like these sheep. My dad and I are partners on them, but he has certain mountain when we sell old sheep or the original flock, they go back to him. Whereas mm -hmm. I do all the management, and, and then we split all the lambs but yeah yep. it just adds to it and anytime you're working with family i've i fully get that yep so yeah you started with those cows um did you immediately jump into daily moves um my first year i'm trying to think i don't i think for first year, I think I was doing daily moves. It was obvi obviously it looked different than what I do now because we have oh, yeah. the interior fence and all the water line, but I was still doing some kind of daily move. And even in that first year, that old pasture that couldn't carry one cow per 10 acres, which is pretty terrible for around here. I know down by you, it's a little different numbers, but you're looking at about a thousand pounds of animal per acre that you can stock here in Southern Wisconsin. So it it was pretty poor ground, but even that first year, just having some kind of rotation and getting 30 to 45 days of rest, it, it almost healed itself. And I would say two years that pasture did, Oh yeah. it's, it's still a work in progress, but it's come back exponentially. Oh yes. And initially were you watering out of, um, some natural water points like ponds or streams? Uh, we don't really have much for ponds or streams here. So our first year oh. we just ran. Uh, basically it was just bit two big water lines that divided the whole farm in half. Now we got substantially more, I think over in 2020 and 2021, I put in 50,000 feet of water line. So oh, wow. a whole bunch, but that first yes. year we just made it as simple as possible. Cause you we were trying to just get some kind of rotational grazing. So, and tell us a little bit about your water line system. Yeah. So ours, uh, we run. Since we are, we got some pretty serious elevation. So ours is all, what's it at? So I run poly polyethylene pipe that you just lay on top of the ground. 
and it's, we run the 200 PSI because we got to pump at 180 pounds to to get it up our hills. So we need that high, that high thickness wall pipe, but it really, it holds up well. And we just have the the placent inserts to put your water tank into. How close do you have those about? Oh, well, I couldn't tell you other maybe. 200 feet, something like that. We got a lot oh, of yeah. them. That's all I know. Oh, but you got a lot of them. Yeah. Yep. So how does that pipe hold up for winters? I mean, it, it's been holding up pretty well in the low spots if you don't drain it. So what we'll all do every fall is just unscrew those plastic and the plastic part. I'll hang it right above that single wire because it'll snap right onto it. And I just naturally let it drain out. Sometimes you might get a low spot. They get some water in and you'll get a crack in it. But if you got 50,000 feet of water line, you're pretty good at fixing, fixing it. So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not a big deal to, to go out there and, and fix a single, a little leak. So. Oh, yes. And is it, I, and you may have said this, I missed, is it like two inch? Uh, mine's one inch. So oh, is it one looking inch? back, yeah, looking back, I wish I would have gone with a bigger, a bigger diameter because the amount of animals I'm running now, it really kind of stresses the water system. I just can't get the the volume of water flowing as fast as I want there. So at this point, now that we can run larger groups, I'm looking at maybe some semi-permanent water points and strategic locations because, and having a big water tank there, like a thousand or 650 gallon water tank, because water in 300 head out of a 200 gallon tank is not a great day. If it flips over, you're there all day uh, watching it. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I got other places to be other pastures to check. So. That's kind of my plan going forward. Oh, yeah. So on your, your cow-calf, just a little bit more, when are you calving and, and how do you manage those calves as opposed to weaning, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're calving in May and, yeah, we're calving in May and June because I rent all my property. We don't have a barn. The weather here in Wisconsin is so variable in April and March. And yeah, just, I wanted to take the temperature just out of my, I wanted to make my temp. Well, let me restart that. So yeah, we're calving in May and June for a few reasons. One, I rent all the ground I own. I don't have a barn or nothing like that. And we used to calve in April, but the temperature and the weather here in Wisconsin is just so variable. I wanted to take the temperature out of the equation. So I pushed the cow herd back to May and June. And man, I'm glad I did that. Calving on green grass is awfully nice. You don't have to worry about the calves freezing or nothing. So, but yeah, we'll carry those camps as late as we can on the cows. Usually we're a wean in December, something like that. And then all the heifers, all the heifer calves will go into my bred heifer enterprise. And then we'll, we will use some of those bulls for breeding purposes. And then the rest of them will go back in steers and we'll put on grass and, and sell the next year. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so you're selling them probably before their first winter, not their first winter, sorry, their second winter. Yeah, I, I'm thinking we'll be selling probably about August, September. Try to hit the oh, high, yeah. high market. Yeah. And what kind of cows are you using? Uh, we have a red Angus cow herd. And then we've been, for the past two years, breeding with the Charlotte bull. I really like the look of the calves, and they just grow tremendously well. So, oh, And yes. people people really seem to like those the blondy colors to go into the feedlot. They gain really well. So that's that's where we're, what we're breeding now. I know my um, niece, her husband, they they do a lot of cattle, and he's 
he's big into livestock auction. He, he loves those yellow calves. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's all the time talking about them. I'm not a fan of Charlet. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I have some predetermined biases <laughs> towards cattle breeds. Um, that okay. developed when I was young a- and I haven't ever been a fan of Charlet, but when I see my neighbors got some Charlet bulls and they mm-hmm. actually look really good. They're moderate frame. They're mm-hmm. beefy. They look like they could work out good. In fact, it has crossed my mind to get one to use as a terminal cross. I haven't done it yet, but <laughs> it has crossed my mind. Yeah, no, I think there's definitely a lot of people that have that predetermined thought that, you know, Charolais are just going to be massive animals. But the Charolais breeders around this country, I think, really have done a good job in bringing that size down. And if you look hard enough, you can find a breeder that's doing a similar type of management to you. So I, I really think they've come a long way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you're also, if you're using a Charolais bull in those red Angus, you also are producing some yellow red. Uh, boy, I'm I'm good at my colors. You're also <laughs> producing some yellow replacement heifers. That's right. Yeah, we are. Yeah. This will be our first year having some marketable for sale. We've only been breeding for two years this way. Oh, yeah. So... This will be our kind of first batch we have for sale, but I mean, the steer calves sell like hotcakes, so I'm hoping the females do too. Yeah, well, hopefully so, yeah. Yeah. I think that's interesting. So tell us a little bit about your replacement heifer program and how you Mm -hmm. manage those. Yeah, so it started out, I wanted to capture some more value from our females, from our cowherd, because I mean, we were making nice females and I... I didn't really like selling them to the sale barn because I knew what they could turn out to be. So that's how it started. And since then, now I go to a lot of other local producers that are raising Red Angus. Well, now it's all breeds almost, but I started with Red Angus. So yeah, we're now I'm running Red Angus, Angus, and we'll be breeding about 30 Charlotte this year too. But my Angus, I'll be doing one round of AI just because I don't have quite as many bulls to breed them. But from a management yeah. standpoint, I got pastures all over the place. So we'll be bull breeding my red Angus and the Charlotte groups because I can only, I only have one big working system. So I'll put that towards the Angus bulls. And then I usually try to sell stuff as early as I can. Usually that ends up being November, December timeframe, much earlier than that. And people really don't want to don't want to feed them that that long but i also right. don't want to keep them through the winter so it's kind of about <laughs> yes finding that happy medium and plus when these cattle come off rotational grazing pasture man they sure look good because they they're getting excellent feed every single day and they're, oh yeah they're they're dead tame they're probably broke so no i'm i'm excited for this year i'm probably going to be working with you know superior livestock or another big place like that to move some semi loads because i'll have 250 this year instead of like 100 so oh yeah now yeah. on your ai and are you doing your own ai or are you paying someone to do that uh, i pay someone to do that. i never learned i mean oh, i'm yeah. sure i could but yeah it's just easier to pay them i usually got to run the the bud box anyway that's where i always seem to end up so actually that's a great great question that wasn't on my radar at all but you mentioned a bud box. So mm-hmm. you have a bud box in place. How's that working for you? Yeah. Well, so my dad's, I mentioned he's a veterinarian and he had a portable tub that we use all while I was growing up. And man, that thing never seemed to work well. The cattle just got riled up when they were in it. 
you could you always had to push them in there. They never wanted to go into the lane. And our first bud box was just a couple gates I set up and they just walked right in the alleyway. Like it wasn't a big deal. And since then we kind of made our own portable one. So you can just pick it up with a skid steer and put it on a trailer and move it to the next pasture. But yeah, oh, yeah. I, I never want to use a tub again because a bud box, they just walk in, they go right in the lane. It, it's so nice. You know, I tried to convince my dad for a bud box. In fact, I put in a little bud box on our calving pasture when we dairied. So this was a long time ago. And um, I'd brag on it to him all the time because it just worked so good. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it, Yeah, so when we put in our new handling facilities, we got a tub in there, which mm -hmm. works. But I often think, man, I'd love to... I'd, I probably wouldn't do it now because we spent too much money putting a tub in. I'd yep. love to have a bud box there if it was just fixed up quite right. Oh, yeah. Um, just a few weeks ago, actually, we were running all our, we ran 170 heifers through through the system. We were doing shots and, and other and retagging and stuff. And I brought up a fellow producer down in Dodgeville, and he's got one of those arrow. Do you know what arrow quip is? It's a, yes. So he's got one of those big systems that's got the tub in the back. And then he came up to see ours and he's like, man, I need to get myself a bud box. Sadly, Aeroquip doesn't make a bud box. I don't know why, but yeah. yeah. Once you use well, one, does, it's kind of silly to have a tub. Does anyone make a bud box? Um, a true a... portable one? Um, I, I don't know. Maybe someone might, but not yeah, that I know I, off I the top of my head. If I know, I've been looking at portable systems. I'd like to find a bumper pull small system, mm -hmm. and um, I can't find what I want. And they're mm -hmm. just priced outlandish. Oh, yeah. They're crazy expensive. Yeah. So, of course, then my next thought is, we'll build one. Well, <laughs> I... Well, you could really, pay me I to don't... build one, and then we could ship it down there. That'd there we go. We may have to discuss that so we can figure that yeah. one out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, the bud box is working good. I, I'm always, you know, I've, I've since I've used one, I really like it, but I just don't see them out there very much. Mm. So with your replacement heifers, those they're just on grass. Are you managing their grass any different than you manage your cowherd grass? Um, not not really. So I my furthest pasture away this coming year is going to be an hour away. So at that location, we won't be doing daily moves. It'll be a, a week or maybe every four days or something like that. That's just an ease of management thing. But right. I mean. If I can, the daily moves just works really, really well. They put on condition great. and No, I manage them about the same. Oh, yes. Have you put in any summer annuals or are you just using perennials and what's out there? Yep. No, so we have about a 15-acre, two pieces of ground that add up to 15 acres. Those are our winter lots, so okay. our winter sacrifice lots. So every year I'm putting in about 15 acres. It's a sorghum sudan mix with sorghum sudan, uh, hairy vetch, clover and maybe something else i don't know but the sorghum sedan kind of always tend to dominate over that so i've been doing oh, that yeah. for two years now i'm sure glad i did because this past year that sorghum sedan only had about two inches of rain on it and it was 14 foot tall so oh, wow it's a, it's a great use of that ground that would otherwise be sitting idle oh yeah yeah now i'm thinking about trying to put a little bit in this year we'll see how it goes mm-hmm Okay. In addition to your 
your replacement heifers, you're also doing custom grazing, correct? Yep. Yes, I am. Yeah. How did, how is that working for you? And, and just when I say that, I've read, um, what is it? Greg Judy's No Risk Ranching. That's mm -hmm. about as close to custom grazing as I've gotten. Now, of course, okay. I've talked to a few people about it, but I'm not yep. super familiar with it and we've never done it. So, so just share with our listeners about custom grazing. And how's that yeah, so working for you? I, in college, never, never heard about it. And I actually had heard about it from one of Greg Judy's videos. And I was like, well, that seems to make sense because I don't have access to $300,000 to buy all my own livestock. And right. when you start talking two, 300 head of cattle, you're talking more money than that yet. So it's a, it's a good tool for beginning farmers to get some livestock on your ground without having that, that financial risk. So, and, but it's. It's best if you can find a good client that appreciates your type of management to pay a little extra. Starting off, you might not have that. That relationship will come with time. But the way I structure my contacts is I'm my contracts is that I get paid per head per day. So every day they're there, I'm getting paid. And then I just bill monthly. And I think it's important to have a drought clause built into your contract. So people understand, you know, it does get dry and what are we going to do in that situation? And I would yeah. just say, Keep, keep your forage priorities in mind when you are custom grazing. Like in my case, we have, I have my own livestock and my custom grazing livestock and my own livestock. I make more money on those and I do my custom grazing ones. So in the case of a drought, it might suck to send home 300 head of livestock early that aren't yours. But at the end of the day, I don't want to be feeding hay in September. So you oh, just got to yeah. keep your, keep your priorities straight. And most of those guys, a lot of my clients are our feedlot guys that are sending steers to me to put weight on over the summer. And then they go back into the feedlot and they, they understand they're farmers too. So as long as you're open with them and I mean, heck this year I knew in May we were going to be dry. So if you're just up front, like, Hey, I don't think we're going to make it as far this year. And, and they're under, they understand. So. Oh yes. So most of your clients are, it's lightweight calves going into a feedlot and they send them to you to graze, get a little size on them before they go back in for feed. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And I heifer breeders or a guy that had heifers. I wanted, he wanted to breed. I did that too. I did pairs one year. I probably wouldn't do that again just because oh, yeah. it was a lot of extra work for not, not that much more money. So yeah. Did you on the pairs, were you kevin them out? God, no, no, they, they showed up. Oh, yeah. I, I thought that'd be a lot more too. No, I mean, it, it worked out, but the calves showed up younger than what I would have liked. So that, that was a challenge and they were first oh, calf yeah. heifer pairs. So that's just another, another oh, yes. issue there too. It, it worked out in the end, but yeah, I, I don't know if someone could pay me enough money to do pairs. <laughs> I mean, ru running yearling cattle is just so easy compared to doing them in my location. We we got to cross the road a lot and making sure you got all the calves is a big deal. And the oh, yearlings yeah. are trained to electric fence in under a week. So yeah, there's no comparison. Yeah. How did you find your clients for your custom grazing? Yeah, it really was not as hard as I thought. So on Facebook, I'm on some like livestock groups and I'm sure everyone knows what I'm talking about. And I just posted on there. I'm like, Hey, I got, I got room for a hundred head of cattle and this is what I want. And when I shifted clients two years ago, it only took me 30 minutes to find someone oh, yes. else. 
So, I mean, it, it is very easy to find people that want livestock. You just put or got livestock that want grass. You just post to those groups and, you know, if you know what you're doing, if you got the fence, they're happy to send them to you. And that's what I've heard that if, if you're looking for clients for custom grazing, they're out there and they're pretty easy to find you once you put the word out. Or pretty, oh, yeah. Pretty quick to find you. Yeah. Yeah. The now, key is to find someone that might, you know, pay 10 cents extra because you are rotationally grazing. Oh, yeah. So that, that's the key is to find a good, good client, good client that appreciates what you're doing. But over time, you can, you can find that. Yes. And when you get those animals in, I'm assuming for the most part, they're not used to electric fence. So how do you go about training them? Yeah, no, they are absolutely, they don't even know what grass is when they come off the semi usually. <laughs> so it, it, it's a whole process. I have about 10 acres that I have fenced separately. So the exterior and the interior fence is all for a wire. High tensile, usually my interior wire is just one wire, but in order to get them broke to that hot wire, I got 10 acres that are divided with basically permanent fencing in and outside of it. So oh. it'll take about, you know, you'll have some run through that. Then I'll divide those paddocks with a hot, just one hot wire and you'll have some run through, but in three, four days, you've got them all trained. So how hot do you like your wire to run? Not as hot as I can get it really. <laughs> yes. Yeah. As long as I don't. I used to run all four wires hot. That was when I had more calves around because you got to keep that, you got to keep them in and they won't stay in unless that bottom wire's hot. But for my yearling steers or my, my yearling cattle, I just run the center two wires now. And then you're not really dealing with the grass on the bottom short, short note. So, and oh, that yeah. keeps them in just fine. So, yeah. What kind of energizer are you using? Are you preferring a plug in energizer? Where solar? I can, yeah, where I can, I prefer a plug-in energizer. It's just a better energizer. Usually you can get a higher output and solar. You got, you know, if it's cloudy for a week, your your juice might be down a bit. So at this point, I'm running just Gallagher stuff. I think they got a good product. But, oh, yeah. you know, everyone's got their own opinion on what fencer works well. But I like the, the on-off switch and the, it, theirs just seem to work real well for me. Yeah. If it's working for you. Don't change because you just got to find what works for you. Exactly. And that's what all this grazing is really about. I mean, I graze differently than my neighbor, but hey, we're still both doing rotational grazing. There's the soil health benefits. There's the wildlife benefits. So yeah, you got to just kind of figure out your own recipe. Right. And one of the biggest things we talk about a lot is you just got to get started and start developing that eye and figuring out what you're doing. But mm -hmm. figure out what works for you. Find someone who does it similar way you want to and jump in. Yep. My wife says I have a problem. I jump into too many things. But, you know, <laughs> that's my problem. That's right. So we've talked a little bit about your cow-calf, replacement heifers, uh, custom grazing, but you also rent out bulls. Yeah, I do a little bit of that. So since I'm raising so many replacement heifers. I usually have a, a lot of yearling bulls. So I got to figure out something to do with those. So over the past, well, I don't know, five years or so, we've kind of developed that. So I'm running about 30 mature bulls and it's a lot of work. I don't make that much money off it. So I may phase that out in the future, oh, but yeah. it's just right now it's a good 
a good use of my bulls I need for breeding my yearlings. So yeah, I mean, it's all right. Dealing with 30 mature bulls can someday, some days be a hassle, but. Well, at, at times I've thought about leasing a bull or, or two out just because, well, they're doing nothing and they could be doing something somewhere else and someone could be feeding them. And, um, yep. Yeah. I wish I had 30 fall calving herds in Wisconsin, but that's just not the case. I think I got about two. So all oh, those yeah. bulls are rented out in the spring, but in the fall, they all tend to come back. Yeah. So. Well, that's, I was wondering, I, I could probably feel a fair better down here because there's a lot more fall calvers down here than yep. else time. And then the other thing on spring, so many people calve in, in winter here mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm not calving till May. So that makes a difference too. Are you seeing a lot of, are there a lot of people in your area calving that late winter? Kevin window as opposed to your May Kevin window? Um, I would say there's there's a good variety all across the board. I mean, you're always gonna have your seat stock guys and your show people that want to calve early so they can get the as big as calves oh, as yeah. possible. But I'd say there's definitely a switch towards calving when the grass is green. There's more of a switch now than there was ten oh, years. Yeah. I mean, ten years ago if you calved in May and June, you were crazy. So oh, yeah. But no, yeah. Th- it's definitely shifting up here. So I think, I think over time it'll just keep changing. Yeah. I think it's shifted here as well, even though, um, March can be really nice here and not that bad, but Mm -hmm. May or late April was really nice, Kevin. So Mm -hmm. now you've been doing this, you got started in 2020. So you've got a few years under your belt and you're still figuring it all out. What? What turned out to be a challenge that you didn't anticipate? Um, well, I would say, I'll, I'll just say this too. I originally got into the whole rotational grazing game to for the benefits, benefits and the economics of it. I mean, it made sense to save money on feed and the cattle did better. But I would say I've really developed a passion for the conservation side of it. Now at this point, I mean, there's a there's a there's so many benefits of it that I really enjoy that part of it, but I really had a hard time leaving grass, not gra- like, so, you know, if you got 12 inches grass, you may be graze six and, and leave six. I had a really hard time leaving that six inches of grass behind. Cause I was like, well, I could spend another day right here. Oh, but yeah. over time I've learned that, Hey, if you leave six, it's probably going to help you out in the long run. So oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that was one big challenge for me. And, and I have to agree, coming to it from an economical standpoint, that's really what got me interested in it when I start thinking I can run more cattle mm-hmm. on the same acreage. And, you know, acquiring land is difficult. Either you got to yep. go out and pay some high prices or you got to find lease land, which is its own problem. So how can we probably not maximize, but how can we optimize or increase the efficiency of what we're getting off our present land and that's really where i came through to it and it just it just aligns so well so i fully get that coming from it with that viewpoint yep where do you see your operation going in the next five years well that'll depend a little bit i think on what happens with serrated shade because i mean right about now 
I get an intern during the summer, but I would say I'm pretty well maxed out for the acres that I can run myself because it's sadly all not in one location. I spend a lot of time in the truck in the summer, just going pasture to pasture, oh, yeah. checking on livestock. So I am looking for maybe one more big 300 acre piece, maybe, but that'd probably be about the max ground that I can run. And going forward, I'm in the process right now of maybe trying to to build a barn or do something like that with equip because the winters up here in Wisconsin, they're just turning worse. It turns into more of a mud season now than, than anything. So my open heifers to really maximize their development and growth over the winter. I want to get them somewhere I can control their ration and get it, get them out of the weather. So I'd like to own maybe, I don't know, the custom grazing is really nice. I'd all, always probably keep, keep my custom grazing clients around. It's nice to have that that income through the summer and kind of a safety oh, net yeah. too in the case of a drought. So I maybe like to own a few more of my livestock. 250 head of heifers is, is a lot to take care of and it's a lot of money invested in that too. So I, I'm pretty happy with livestock where I'm at and I always want more land. I love land and it's <laughs> yeah. nice turning it back into grass too. So yeah, but if serrated shade really, really takes off, I might have to bring on two interns or maybe some, some part-time help, but that'll just be what the future holds, I guess. Oh, yes. And that's a great segue into our overgrazing section where we take a deeper dive into something about your operation. And we are going to talk about serrated shade today. Mm -hmm. So tell us what serrated shade is. Yeah, well, this will be good practice because I'm going to the uh, Western Farm Show in Kansas City, Missouri. Tomorrow, we're driving down there. And oh, yes. We, we got a booth down there, so I don't know when this comes out, but if people are down there, feel free to stop by. Say hi. No, but Serrated Shade, me and my brother started this company. We built our first prototype. Would have been uh, 2021. Then we just went public with it this past summer, so 2023. But it's portable livestock shade that's kind of geared towards rotational grazing guys. So, I mean, I came up with it because I was converting all this corn and soybean ground back into pasture and there weren't any trees. So the summers are kind of changing around here. It's getting, getting a little hotter. So these custom grazing cattle that I was getting in, they're, they're not used to grazing. They're not used to the heat. So they were really suffering and I was basically too cheap to go buy the competition. So I came, came up with my own. Now mine, you know, they're not cheap. We'll get into that maybe a little later, but it's a great tool. I, I use four of them on my own operation and I honestly don't like grazing without them now because the cattle just love them. They come standard with a mineral feeder on them. So you're taking just, you don't got to move the water, move the livestock and then move your shade. So it just oh, adding that mineral feeder to it just took another thing out of the equation, but no, they're a great tool. I, you can park them over. If you got a patch of thistles, patch of weeds, park it over that. A few hours later, you won't have any because the cattle will all be under there trampling it. It's a great tool for managing nutrient distribution. So if you got a poor doing part of your pasture, park it over it. Animals will condense there, drop lots of manure and urine. Yeah, it's a great tool. How big is it? How many cows can use it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so our big model right now we just have the one model at the moment. It's 1,300 square feet. I know I actually had did the math wrong and we were telling people it was 1,100 square feet for about a year now, but it's actually 1,300 square feet. Oh, So we say you can fit, that can fit underneath it at one time. We say 80 head of pair or 80 cows, 
four. No, is that right? I got to get my facts straight. No, 40 cows can fit underneath it at one time or 80 yearling head of steers. So, oops. Oh, okay. And now, yeah. Yep. But I do say that there's that number, but I personally have run them in bigger herds than that. So I would say you could easily go up to 60 head of pairs and throughout the day, the cattle kind of take turns underneath the shade. So some will be under the shade, some be out grazing, some be at the water tank, some be laying down. And with yearling steers, I could say you could go up to about 120 animals per unit. So they're definitely not limited by that. What can fit underneath there at one time. Oh, yeah. So how's the, the shade part work? Because I'm assuming it's easy to take down so you can go down a road. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a farmer. I built these things to work for us. So they open and if you're good at it, you can get it open in three minutes and close it in about the same time. So there's, if people look it up on the internet, there's basically one big front part and then there's one big rear part of shade. And then you just crank a couple inches to undo the locks, fold it up and, and you're good to go. And then to, to open it, you just undo the tension on the winches it'll automatically open up and then kind of our name to the game is we have a automatic or a manually operated hydraulic pump that raises this big piece a big long piece of steel up in the middle of the shades and that really provides the extra tension that is required for for it to withstand the wind so just opening it up and locking it open i would say provides about 70 percent of the tension that you need, but that hydraulic raising arm adds an extra 30% of tension. So it's able to take winds up to about 60 miles an hour too, because we provide oh, that yeah. extra tension to it. How long does it take you to put it up and take it down? Uh, to do the whole thing, about six minutes. Oh yeah. So fairly yeah. quick. Oh yeah. It's very quick. And I mean, it, it can handle a lot for wind. Like your average pop-up thunderstorm, no problem at all. The fabric is semi-permeable, so any water that goes does pull up on it will leak right through. And it's built out of a shade cloth that's 80-20, so it'll block 80% of the light, let 20% of the light in. And uh, it's got seatbelt edging, so it's a really heavy-duty material. Oh, very good. And does it have like a, is it a bumper pull with a ball hitch on it? Mm-hmm. So... You know, like a feed wagon has got that swiveling front two tires on it. So oh, yes. That's actually what the front of ours is. It's those swivel two tires with a telescoping hitch on it. So it's, it's real easy to hook up, move around wherever you need to. Oh, yes. And does that hitch, does it fold up in the air when you've got stationary or is it laying on the ground? You can if you want. Yeah, you could, you could chain it up to one of the support pieces that are around the mineral feeder. That way, if the cattle do start packing underneath there, they're not crapping all over it or pushing it down into the dirt. But since right. we're out there moving it every day, we move ours every day. We don't have too much of an issue of them pushing the hitch into the ground. So, oh, okay. but yeah, you you can do either one. And yeah, we do. We can actually put brakes on them too. That it's an extra cost, but it's not really for the livestock. The livestock they don't really push it around, and even if. They are pushing on it. There's usually one pushing one way, one's pushing the other way. So oh, yeah. it, do, it doesn't actually go anywhere. And they're, they're, significant, they're significantly heavy, but the brakes are just a convenience factor. So if you're 
point downhill or uphill a little bit and you unhook it, you don't want it to roll away on you. So you, oh, yeah. you throw the brakes on and it's not going to go anywhere on you. Oh, very good. Yeah. And you mentioned this a little bit. How much does a serrated shade cost? Yep. So our our base unit right now, our 1,300 square foot unit is $21,000, $21,500. So I know it is expensive. So if there are any listeners in the Midwest region, the Midwest region, we do have a rental program too. So if you don't want to, you know, pay that upfront cost, you can get one unit for your grazing season. Three hundred miles from Southwest Wisconsin is thirty five hundred bucks for for your summer. So, and actually, a little cool fact. So, I was at a grazing conference a few weeks ago, and I was talking to some of the guys there at our CS. And so, they do right now. They do have cost share for a mobile shade structure like this, but. That cost share hasn't really kept up with the current rate of what mine and the competitors cost, but they are thinking they're going to come out to my place this summer and my competitors, they're going to take a look at our, our units and they're hoping to up their cost share percentage, probably looking at, at 2025. So right now the only cost share, like maybe 20%, but they're hoping to get it up to 70%. So if that does come through, I'm afraid I'm going to be too busy welding to get any more land. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. That I can see how that really, well, it helps farmer out, help you out as well. Um, Any amount they pay is nice though. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, right now I think you'd get that 20% would be like 4,000, four or $5,000, but I would like each state is different. So I had a guy from, where was it? It was out on the East Coast somewhere. Maybe one of the Carolinas called and asked about it, and he called his NRCS. And they don't have cost share for shade down in the Carolinas, but they do in oh, Wisconsin. Yeah. So you just got to oh. check with your local office and and see what the deal is. Oh yeah, yeah. Have to check on that. Mm-hmm. Anything else about serrated shade you'd like to add before we transition to the famous four? Yeah, I would say probably one of my uh, the biggest things I hear is well, why don't you just plant trees? Because, you know, those are best for the environment. And I, I totally agree. Trees are probably the best thing for the environment. But for what I'm doing and a lot of other people are doing, we're converting row crop ground that's got no trees back into pasture. And we need shade today, not 50 years from now. So uh, yes, you, you need the shade there. And then well, I got to I got to get all my points straight. We're going to the uh, trade <laughs> show tomorrow. Well, but yeah, I mean, it, you, you just can't wait. And in my case, I rent a lot of my ground. So my landowners don't want me planting trees. So yeah, th- those are my two biggest rebuttals to, to that question. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to bring up on lease land, uh, planting trees is a really iffy proposition because the landowner may or may not be interested in it. And then, exactly. do you want to spend the money to plant trees if you don't have a long-term contract? Because trees... You better be talking a real long-term contract. Right, because trees aren't ready tomorrow. Absolutely not. And there are, you know, there's are some fast-growing trees, which which do work good, but you can't move a tree. You can move mine to any (laughs) quarter. You can move my my product to any quarter of the pasture and use it. And honestly, they use the shade structure even when it's not that hot out. We've had about 60-degree days, and... Still, the cattle congregate underneath them. So you're still getting some benefit out of it, even not on the hotter days. I know up here in Wisconsin, it's a little harder sell because we don't have quite as many hot days as people down south do. So one day, you know, I'd love to get down to 
Texas or Missouri where there's some longer heat periods, but. I definitely get that because when I think about heat and sun, I don't necessarily think Wisconsin, but. Yeah. No, it gets hot and humid here and yeah, <laughs> but not as long as other places do. Right. Yeah. Well, Connor, thank you for sharing about that. It's time for us to transition to our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our first question, what is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? Boy, that was kind of tough for me to say. What is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? Yeah, so I, I haven't read too many grazing books, so I, I don't think I have a good record, good answer for that, but. A grazing resource. I really enjoy podcasts like the one we're doing today. And Jared Lumen, I think that's a really good one. The herd quitter. And oh, he there's, there's tons more out there. So I think that's a great, a great thing is in YouTube. Also, I, I learned a lot from that starting out. There's tons of grazing channels out there for any kind of grazing you want to do. So I think those are two really good platforms to, to learn a lot about it. It's amazing. The amount of knowledge you can gather from podcasts and from YouTube. It's just mm -hmm. amazing. So excellent. Yeah. Research. I mean, I learned, yeah, I learned nothing about rotational grazing in college. I learned it all from YouTube and podcasts. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope Oklahoma state is doing more for rotational grazing than when I went through. But when I went through a few decades ago, we didn't talk about rotational grazing. Yeah. And in most places they still don't, but. <laughs> Our second question. What is your favorite tool for the farm? I mean, I would have to, mine's maybe in combination, just the, the whole UTV setup. You can carry your reels, your step-in posts. I mean, I wouldn't be able to do what I do without having my grazing system on, a, on a, some kind of a mobile unit. So those oh, really yeah. work well. And I, I need my laptop for running all the business and all the mapping and all that. So, Oh, yeah. Excellent choices there. Um, both essential in so many ways. I thought you might go with your shade structure, but you know. Oh, I sh I should have said that. Yeah, you're right. I should have said that for sure. No, that's a that's a really nice tool too. Now is the shade structures and so. Yeah. Our third question: What would you tell someone just getting started? Um, I'd say there's there's always going to be people out there doubting that what you're doing ain't going to work, but. In most cases, you could probably figure out how to do it. And I would just encourage more young people to, to try to get into the business because there's an, there's a lot of older landowners and there's a lot of absentee landowners. And if what you're doing interests them, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity out there. You just got to be hungry and you got to go after it. And I'm just, I think that's excellent advice, Connor. And I'm just going to expand upon that just a little bit. Um, I've mentioned, I think I mentioned it on a couple podcasts, um, but I'm reading this book and I'm, I would have been finished. It's not a long book, but I, I've been taking my time. It's million dollar weekend. But one thing that comes that I get from that, he talks about the rejection and that you've got to be asking people questions that they say no to. And the reason he says that, because if you're not pushing the envelope and trying you're never going to get these no answers. So first mm -hmm. off, you got to be doing that. But no, it, no one likes to be rejected. No one likes to, to fail at what they're asking. So he says you should have a rejection quota or a goal 
for your number of rejections. So how many rejections did you get this week? And I think for me, that was a, a tough thing hunting for land. Um, I still need to find more land because I don't have enough. But, you know, just getting out there and it's okay to be told no. Yeah, I mean, every day, not every day, but I mean, I'm still looking for land and I hear no more often than I hear yes. I, I almost never hear, oh yeah, I'd be happy to let you graze my ground. <laughs> that almost never happens. But yeah, it's right. important to you know keep, keep your head up because eventually there will be somebody. Yeah. Keep looking, you identify the land, then you can take that next step, brother. That's custom grazing, buying some livestock or getting in there and doing something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent advice. Not on my part, excellent on your part. I just added a little bit in. Mm -hmm. And Connor, lastly, where can others find out more about you? Yeah, so if you're looking to learn more about my farm, you can check that out on Facebook, Lau Camp Farms. We, we should pop right up. Or if you're looking to look at some shade, you should be able to Google search serrated, serrated Shade LLC. We do have a Facebook up page for that too. So if you message either one of those, you'll you'll be talking to me. Wonderful, Connor. I appreciate you coming on and sharing. We'll make sure we get those links in our show notes as well. Thank you, Connor. Yeah, thank you. I had a great time. We were able to finally make it work. For the listeners out there, not only did we have the power outage in the middle of the first recording, this recording got pushed back because I had sheep out. So appreciate your flexibility, Connor. Yeah, no problem at all. I'm just packing for the trade show, so I was... In the house anyway, so it wasn't an issue. I had a great time, so thanks for having me on. I, sometime, some days I don't know if I'm quite qualified to, to show up on one of these podcasts, but it's exciting to get the invitation. Well, I'm not, and they let me come back every week. Yeah, right. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, Click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.